welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on Apple and Google Podcasts and sponsored by Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. This is episode 65 of the show where we talk about how the airline passenger experience is evolving in a mobile, social, vocal world. I'm Mary Kirby and I'm joined by my co-host Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Doing well, Mary. I think like you, trying desperately to keep up with the pace of the news this week. Yeah, it has been dizzying, Max. Um, And I have to tell you, my right hand is starting to freeze up. That's how much typing I've been doing (laughs) here the last few days. And I'm going to tell you right now, Max, I do see the irony in today discussing the Boeing 737 Max with some unnamed Max flight. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, looking forward to the discussion. Before we get started, we'd like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this podcast. Jetliner Cabins is the story of how scientists, designers, engineers, maintenance, and marketing specialists have transformed the stark tubular interiors of typical airliners into unique settings. This ebook app invites readers to explore the expertise, discover the details, and enjoy the fascinating world of Jetliner Cabins. Visit Jetliner Cabins to learn more and to download the app. Now, let's take a look at the number one PaxX news story making headlines. The entire world fleet of Boeing 737 MAX aircraft has been grounded. This following the tragic March 10 crash of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, a Boeing 737 MAX 8. The aircraft crashed six minutes after takeoff, killing all 157 people on board in many People immediately started drawing comparisons between this crash and the October 29, 2018 crash of Lion Air Flight 610, which lost communication after takeoff from Jakarta and sank into the Java Sea with 189 people on board. This week has obviously been incredibly difficult for the families and friends of those who perished on Flight 302. It's also been an anxiety-inducing week for travelers scheduled to fly on MAX aircraft as the groundings occurred progressively across the globe. Importantly, the U.S. and Canada were among the very last countries to take action, and many travelers believe their delay in suspending MAX services came far too late. Mary, can you break down the timeline of what happened following the crash of ET-302 the impact on passengers and why Boeing and the FAA are now being harshly scrutinized in some corners for taking so long to arrive at the same conclusion as other major regulators and ground the max. Max, I got to tell you, in 20 years of covering the aviation industry, I can honestly say that I have never witnessed anything quite like what transpired this week. So I have to apologize in advance that I'm going to be a little long-winded here because I think it is important to understand the sequence of events. So on March 10, following the crash of Ethiopian Flight 302, China ordered its carriers to ground all 737 MAX aircraft, and Indonesia also said it would suspend flights. And then really the dominoes began to fall with Australia, Singapore, India, the UK, and a number of individual airlines refusing to allow the MAX to be flown. On March 12th, two days after the crash, Europe joined the fray with EASA announcing it would suspend all MAX flights as a precautionary measure. And it was at this moment that the pressure really began to mount on the FAA and Transport Canada to do the same. EASA being obviously a highly respected regulator, Max, and very much in line and lockstep with the FAA on so many issues. 
but neither Canada nor the United States acted, and in fact, U.S. and Canadian operators of the MAX expressed confidence in the type and indicated they were not changing operational policies and procedures. So the North American operators of the MAX 8 include American Airlines, Southwest, Air Canada, and WestJet, and United Airlines operates the MAX 9 variant. And I got to tell you, it was really painful to see some of the exchanges on Twitter between MAX operators and passengers who were petrified to fly the aircraft. And some operators, to their credit, appeared to start addressing passengers' concerns on a case-by-case basis. I personally observed Air Canada, for instance, urging passengers to enter into Twitter DM conversations with the airline when they sought to change their MAX flights. Um, United Airlines on Twitter pointed out that it flies the MAX 9, not the MAX 8 variant involved in Lion Air uh, and the Ethiopian crash. But by this time, on March 12th, uh, with Europe and regulators around the world grounding the MAX, the variant hardly mattered to passengers at this point, and a lot of people who were scheduled to fly on any MAX were scared. Now, I've seen a lot of folks in industry, unfortunately, uh, more at least than I'd like to see, suggest that passengers' fears were invalid, that regulators had no basis to ground the aircraft, that safety decisions should not be influenced by passenger fear. But I have to rebuke the framing of the narrative because it ignores some really key disclosures. So first of all, the the Association of Professional Flight Attendants, which represents flight attendants at American Airlines, alerted their members that airline management had confirmed it would allow normal, normal fear of flying procedures, meaning if you feel it is unsafe to work the 737 MAX, you will not be forced to fly it. And the Washington Post reported that Air Canada was making similar allowances for its flight attendants. So passengers obviously put two and two together and said to themselves, hang around, why are my wishes as a paying customer not being accommodated? Why should I be on the hook for changes to my itinerary if it involves a max? You're permitting flight attendants to make decisions that make sense to them and their perception of safety. Why not paying customers? Um, But moreover, we had kind of a growing number of safety experts at this time cautioning that there were comparisons to be made between the Ethiopian and Lion Air crashes that at a minimum shouldn't be ignored. Um, And then, of course, a rather damning report emerged on March 12th from the Dallas Morning News that revealed that pilots repeatedly voiced safety concerns about the MAX 8 to federal authorities with one captain calling the flight manual for the MAX inadequate and almost criminally insufficient several months before the Ethiopian crash. And so meanwhile, even though the FAA at this point still saw the MAX as airworthy, it said it would mandate design changes to the MAX's maneuvering characteristics augmentation system, which of course is the technology being scrutinized right now. So this notion that travelers were supposed to suspend logic is personally, candidly, infuriating to me. Then, on March 13th, Transport Canada announced it would suspend MAX flights, citing new satellite data, and this was quickly followed by an announcement from U.S. President Donald Trump that MAX flights in the U.S. would be grounded. And now they're pointing to new evidence found at the site and new sat- this new satellite data, which is coming from Arion, and that's the space-based ADSB flight tracking service, which we've talked a lot about in the past, MAX. So that's among the drivers behind the decision by Canada and the U.S. to ground the MAX. So that's where we're at right now. Max, you're a longtime industry veteran. What are your thoughts on what played out over the last week? I think the, the conclusion was inevitable, and 
really the, uh, the the U.S. regulators and the U.S. airlines operating these aircraft uh, really from the start had no way to manage this despite attempting to to do so. Uh, while there are you know some arguments to be made that at least in the first few days there really wasn't any data that would lead to grounding the entire fleet it almost doesn't matter when public perception takes over now some are critical of the press for uh, maybe amplifying the uh, possible connections with lion air or uh, other things of of that sort but it doesn't matter really what matters is what does the public think? And it was pretty clear that in the face of what they were watching unfold, uh, there was a lot of fear. And to have your your customers in a state of fear, that's just an untenable position. I mean, I was trying to put myself in a position of if I was taking a flight today on a 737 MAX aircraft, how would I feel? What would I do? And, I mean, logic told me to not be concerned and to fly, but somehow in the pit of my stomach was just this this feeling that that might not be too wise. So I'm sure that's how the flying public thought. Yeah. I be, yeah, I believe the flying public was well within its rights to feel that way, given everything that was transpiring, as you say. And as the dominoes began to fall, Max, you know, country after country, and the news was changing minute by minute. I mean, no sooner would I hit publish on a piece, and I was finding myself having to update it, <laughs> because yet another country had announced, or yet another airline had grounded. And um, so that, you know, the, in that respect, the media was doing its job. It was reporting yes. each domino falling. Um and it's rational, in my opinion, that passengers were and travelers were paying attention to all of the latest news. And, and it did become a, kind of a flurry of announcements. But at the end of the day, as you say, you know, passenger fear is valid. And it's something that can't be discounted. Now, there is a big question mark as to why Donald Trump led the announcement and not the FAA when the U.S. did gra- finally ground uh, the 737 MAX, one of the last countries to do so. But the hard fact is that we only have an acting FAA administrator right now, which is itself concerning, I think. Hmm. Um, And of course, earlier in the week, um, Trump threw what I would consider a proverbial Molotov cocktail into the max grounding debate when he tweeted that, quote, airplanes are becoming far too complex to fly. Pilots are no longer needed, but rather computer scientists from MIT. So, I mean, I think one can have a rational conversation about whether systems are being over-engineered out there or, you know, but Trump's tweet, I think, added to the mayhem and confusion to what was already a confusing situation, which he seems to have, he's apt to do these days. Yes. You know, by coincidence, uh, I was on uh, with BBC Radio Live uh, the other day, yesterday, I guess, and uh, while I was on mute waiting for my segment to start, I could hear the program. And just before they uh, brought me into the call, they read uh, President Trump's tweet. Now, they didn't comment explicitly on it, but the tone in their voice as they were reading the tweet, at least to me, made it clear that it was maybe not the most appropriate thing to uh, to do. But uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And we could speculate on lots of uh, 
conversations that may have taken place prior to uh, to him posting right. that tweet uh, and different motivations for it. But uh, one thing we want to make sure everybody realizes, of course, is that these investigations are underway now. The Lion Air Flight 610 investigation has not concluded. They're still working on that. The As we record this, the black boxes from Ethiopian Flight 302, the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder, are on their way to France for analysis. So those haven't been looked at, at least uh, to our knowledge at this point. Apparently the capability uh, to uh, analyze the black boxes doesn't exist in Ethiopia. And so um, they're on their way to uh, to France, I presume to the BEA, to take a look at. Although it was a little bit interesting that those boxes, while they were recovered pretty quickly, it seems like they didn't start their journey uh, to France for a, a day or so. I'm I'm kind of surprised at that. Yeah, there were some initial reports from, I believe it was Reuters, suggesting that the, the original plan was that they were going to be sent to Germany and then uh, said they didn't have the software needed to analyze it because of the newness of the Macs. And that's a report. I haven't confirmed that. But um, interestingly, they're not jetting these uh, these black boxes over to the United States, um, which probably is something else that could be analyzed and considered as to why not. Um, but NTSB has just announced that they are sending some NTSB reps over to France to assist in the investigation. So that is happening. All right. Very good. Well, of course, we keep talking about the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, the MCAS, and uh, whether or not that may have played a role or been part of the cause of both of these crashes. And just to talk about that a little bit, it's a stall prevention system, basically, that was introduced on the 737 MAX because of some design differences with previous 737 generation aircraft. And uh, that includes things like larger diameter engines that are heavier and positioned a little differently, a little farther forward. And this results in slightly different aerodynamic characteristics of the MAX plane. In certain circumstances, the nose can pitch up a little bit. So the idea is that the MCAS uses the angle of attack indicator, the AOA indicator, to tell it when the nose pitches up with the possibility of a stall. In that case, and this is all happening automatically, the MCAS directs the airplane's flight control computer to activate the horizontal stabilizers on the plane's tail and point the nose back down. Now, we may have had an AOA indicator problem with the Lion Air crash. Not sure. Uh, In that case, the the data showed that the pilots repeatedly tried to counter nose up and down cycles uh, and were ultimately unsuccessful at that. After the Lion Air crash, Boeing issued an AD, an airworthiness directive, that explained how to override the MCAS systems. Now, pilots say that they weren't even aware that there was this new system, that they had received very minimal 737 MAX training, and that that training didn't cover the MCAS. So Boeing has said it will release some changes to the software Also, the cockpit displays so pilots wouldn't have to rely so much on executing a recovery process from memory. That process was uh, explained in that AD. 
And Boeing also plans to update operating manuals and crew training. All this is supposedly coming uh, in the next uh, next few weeks. But it's an interesting situation. Boeing, I think, uh, was uh, you know, very adamant explaining to customers this, the minimal differences in flying the 737 MAX versus the previous generation. Very little training required and, and so forth. Don't know how that might have figured into the decision to not make it part of any training, the MCAS, uh, or, or not. Yeah, it's interesting, Max, because it is pretty clear that some countries and some specific airlines kind of have taken measures to enhance Max safety. Some are claiming that they went above and beyond even what, say, the FAA Airworthiness Directive suggested after the Lion Air crash. So, for for example, um, Transport uh, Canada, the Canadian Minister of Transport, he said that when he announced on March 13 that Canada um, was going to ground the MAX, he said that Canada was one of the first countries to effectively go above and beyond. Um, he said, Canadian requirements for these new procedures and training to protect against the risk identified went above and beyond the measures directed by the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration and Boeing and above and beyond what other nations have done in terms of ensuring that their pilots were trained, which I guess is some sort of explanation for why Canadian operators weren't as fast on the draw to ground the aircraft because he at least seems to be suggesting that after this AD was issued in the wake of the Lion Air crash that Canadian pilots were trained very well in this uh, MCAS system and what would be required. Now, also the, airline, uh, the Allied Pilots Association, um, which represents pilots at American Airlines, they issued what I consider a highly revelatory comment this week, saying the flying public should also be aware that American Airlines Boeing 737 MAX planes are unique. After the loss of Lion Air Flight 610, Boeing disclosed that the MCAS can be triggered by a single erroneous angle of attack event. The two dozen 737 MAX aircraft in the American Airlines fleet are the only ones equipped with two AOA displays, one for each pilot, providing an extra layer of awareness and warning, which I was like, wow. Yes, I saw that. I didn't realize that until that came out. Yeah. Like an extra layer of awareness and warning. I've reached out to Southwest to see if they've got the same, because this is obviously APA making this claim uh, and, and where Southwest stands. But this would also help explain a little bit as to why perhaps Canada and the U.S. felt that they, you know, had already taken the measures appropriate to ensure passenger safety, not providing excuses one way or the other. But this this might help explain why it took so mm. long. Um, I should note, of course, John Ostrauer over at the Air Current has done a lot of great, 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 great work explaining why MCAS was deemed necessary in the first place. And I'll certainly link uh, through to his piece because um, he, he really goes into great depth of explanation as to, to why it's there. So I guess what's next when it comes to the technology, Max? I mean, the FAA is effectively saying that we should expect um, some further uh, design changes here uh, by April. That's their latest guidance, is that MCAS design changes uh, via AD will come out by April of this year. Even that may end up being a premature move, depending on what the investigation into this Ethiopian crash um, shows. I mean, uh, clearly, 
as the MCAS exists now and as the training exists now, pilots, if they aren't already, and I'm, I'm sure they are by now, uh, need to be trained in the operation of this or more specifically, uh, how to handle the situation when the system is producing unexpected results, which is basically to turn it off. Uh, I've I've talked with some pilots who say that's actually nothing new. That uh, if if there is a flight control issue where uh, the aircraft is behaving not as desired or uh, as appropriate, that the pilot will take over and and correct that. That's just part of the the natural process. But nevertheless, I like Boeing's uh, idea or statement that uh, system changes can be made so that uh, the the situation is more readily apparent and the the means by which to correct it are more obvious, easier to come to. But I, I think the key, to me, the key part of this whole thing occurred when the uh, United States announced that it would be grounding these planes too, was the statements that there was new information that uh, prior to that, you could really argue one way or another whether you should ground the fleet based on on logic or technical considerations because there wasn't any data that linked the two uh, the two crashes. But we have this, at least at this point, some sort of general statements about some, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Mary, some similarities uh, with regard to the uh, aircraft movements prior to the crash and there being similarities to the two. So uh, with that, I think uh, that that's kind of the turning point in my mind in terms of saying that, okay, this is more likely uh, than before that we have, uh, we have an issue here. W- one of the questions that comes up, of course, is how did we get to this point? There have been some, uh, some discussions about the relationship between Boeing in the FAA, and some people are now asking uh, whether the FAA uh, is chiefly focused on passenger safety or corporate interests. And uh, even at times, Boeing appeared to be speaking on behalf of the FAA, even going so far as to say on March 13 that it would, quote, recommend to the FAA, unquote, the temporary suspension of the MAX. And uh, it was interesting, as you said also previously, that uh, it was the U.S. president, not the FAA, who delivered the the news on the groundings. So uh, I think um, a number of people have suspected for quite some time, Mary, that the relationship between corporations and the FAA is, well, maybe a little too cozy. But there's some history to this uh, paradigm. What should we know? Well, just very quickly, Max, with respect to to Trump uh, announcing ahead of the FAA, it appears that uh, Trump effectively trumped the FAA, that the FAA was ready with an announcement and and Trump went ahead and and took the lead on that narrative. Um, So at least that's that is effectively what we're being or what is being suggested today. Um, the FAA wants to clarify that because obviously there's a lot of questions right now as to, as to why did that happen and how did that transpire that way. But um, to your point about whether or not the FAA and Boeing and indeed all major U.S. corporations involved in, in aviation enjoy kind of a cozy relationship, you know, someone just said on Twitter, the world now thinks that the FAA is politicized. That's what the world thinks. 
Um, whether that's true or not, Aerospace Industries Association, which represents many of the biggest heavy hitters in aviation and indeed the military industrial complex, admitted itself in 2017 that in civil aviation it has developed a close and productive working relationship with the FAA to enhance aviation safety and, quote, indeed, we've entered a period of unparalleled cooperation with our regulators. So I don't think we have to guess too much on this one when the industry admits itself that it's enjoying unparalleled cooperation. Um, but there's also no question that industry has long adhered to voluntary safety reporting and even aircraft system certification, for example, MAX is farmed out to entities that operate on behalf of the FAA. So there's not always even a direct line to the FAA when you're talking sure. system certification. And while I think, you know, a Trump administration might make it even easier, the reality is that the wheels have been in motion for years, including under the Obama administration. So in 2015, the FAA issued an order outlining a new compliance philosophy, which embraces self-reporting safety management pr principles to address emerging safety risks versus a traditional enforcement-focused regulatory model. And it explained at the time... We are shifting our culture because the aviation environment has reached a level of complexity where we cannot achieve further safety improvements by following a purely rule-based approach. Um, so in some respects, it kind of admitted it, it's not equipped to handle the pace at which technological change is happening and that this necessitated a much closer relationship with industry. Yes. But is the FAA even reading some of the voluntary reporting out there? You know, this Dallas Morning News report that emerged this week notes that after the FAA issued its AD in the wake of the Lion Air crash, pilots confided their concerns about the MAX to NASA, which serves as a neutral third party. And so I guess my question is when you've got multiple pilots self-reporting anonymously – did the, was the FAA taking that into account? And, and I guess, was the FAA taking that into account whilst these carriers were rapidly trying to cha train their pilots to understand MCAS? I, mean, I guess we, we don't know, and it, I, we got to be careful here. It would be speculation. But, you know, if you're going to focus on a self-reporting uh, kind of regime, you have to pay attention to those reports. Yes, yes. That that NASA system, it's interesting that it's under NASA, but it's called the Aviation Safety Reporting System, ASRS. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And many countries don't have something like this where professionals have an opportunity to make comments uh, freely uh, without fear of retribution and negative re reaction to what they might have to say. So it's a very valuable uh, source of information, or, or it can be. It's unclear uh, how many pilots or, or what the rate of negative comments has been. Uh, I've seen the the quotes from uh, from some of the uh, pilots who've commented in the ASRS. I don't know if that is just a small sampling of many such comments, or if it's just a, a few pilots that uh, have those kinds of opinions. So. I just don't know. But I agree with you that these systems have become so complex that the FAA or any kind of uh, outside entity is uh, never going to be as knowledgeable as the company that's developing the products. And I, in some ways, it may be kind of creeping so and growing over time so that uh, there, I don't think there was a really a a milestone event when the regulatory agency and private industry got cozy. I think it, it sort of grew over time. But 
in that kind of a situation, the the important thing is, well, the important question is, you know, how do we certify aircraft under this kind of uh, reality? And you have to rely on manufacturers to a certain extent, but it has to be done under an overall process that tends to produce good results. And a part of that is consideration of the balance of objectives across the parties, right? All, all involved will say safety is, is uh, clearly one of the objectives, but there's also timeliness. How long does that process take? What's the cost of the process? Is it out of uh, control or is it reasonable? And the risk, uh, what's the risk trade-off for decisions that are made? But given that we do have a process of sorts for certifying aircraft that includes participation by industry, by government, by others, it has to include oversight. We need a way to know, well, how well is this process operating? You don't really want a situation where it just unfolds over time until something bad happens. Uh, And I'm not saying that we know with certainty that this last pair of crashes is, is an example of that or not. But I just saw uh, just today that the Washington Post was reporting that uh, Representative Peter DeFazio, who's the chairman of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, he's announced that he would hold hearings to study the FAA's process for approving the aircraft. So Mm. I I think that sounds like a good action to take. I, I don't know if that process has really been examined critically in the past or not, but it sounds like this is a good time to do that. Ah, fascinating, Max. I hadn't seen that report, so I'll check that out as soon as we're done here. But the uh, it also begs the question then if they're pulling back the reins a little bit, because as we've talked about many times in the past, of course, uh, FAA is now also under the gun uh, to uh, develop minimum seed size standards. Mm. Um, so I wonder if this is kind of, uh, you know, you, you swing too far to the right a little bit and then you get pulled back. <laughs> to yeah. the left for a little bit of balance here, um, and, and maybe that maybe that's what we're seeing. And I I think I can speak on behalf of the consumer advocacy groups out there that that's exactly what they would like to see now, Max. But in, in some kind of ironic ways, what you just described about the complexity of the modern aircraft these days, I guess not that I want to spend my time trying to interpret Donald Trump tweets here, but. That may have been what he was trying – he was effectively trying to say and just did so in clumsy way perhaps. But, um, you know, during the best of times, Twitter can be a cesspool of negativity. And I have to say there's days I feel like I have to wear some virtual armor before getting on Twitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as a journalist, you can't ignore it. You have to be present. Um, and I have found that whenever a high-profile aircraft safety story breaks, a special kind of jerk emerges and – you know, we see a huge amount of mansplaining about you have to remove all emotion from the discussion. But, Max, we are in a mobile, social, vocal world. That's right. So to ignore or discount passengers and flight attendants' fears as being somehow irrational and emotional-based, for me, it speaks volumes about the fact that this is still a male-dominated industry, to me, and how male voices still lead the conversation. 
But beyond all of that, I mean, we ha- it's bad business yes, to exactly, not exactly. – it's bad business not to accept the reality of our world. Everyone is carrying a device or multiple devices, you know, in the modern world. In-flight connectivity is spreading across aircraft throughout the world. People are tweeting about their passenger experience in flight. People are talking about everything to do with every element of their experience from the food to the entertainment, to the crew experience, to every aspect, and to ignore passenger fear, to ignore the fact that passengers have a voice via social media, it's bad business. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you can argue against uh, consideration of uh, emotions and passenger feelings and, and all of that, uh, but it's a bad business decision to act on that and not on how your customers are feeling and uh, uh, what their concerns are. You can do it at your own peril, but it, it's not a good uh, business decision. It's not. It's not. But um, in any case, Max, uh, we're rapidly coming to a close. Um, I want to thank our listeners and our sponsor, Jetliner Cabin's ebook app. And remember, you can find us online at RomeGirlNetwork.com and on Apple and Google Podcasts. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Runway Girl. And remember to use the Pactex hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. We would love to have you and would also love to get your thoughts on today's podcast, of course, as ever. Absolutely. And, of course, we'll also ask you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the Pax X podcast. Take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.